Well, good morning, church. He is risen. All right. Well, you know that the Christian faith stands or falls. It lives or dies on the historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul makes this point when he writes the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, we read, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about Christ, that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So what Paul is basically saying here in, in, this, in, in these sentences here is that if you could get in a time machine, we've got some engineers in the room, if you could build a time machine and it worked and you got into it and you could dial it back to early Easter morning, A.D. 33 or so, and you could hide behind a rock with a video camera outside the tomb of Jesus. And, and there you see Mary Magdalene and, and the women approaching, and they find a sealed tomb that contains the dead body of Jesus. If, if that's the case, there, there would be no reason at all to be a Christian. I mean, if the resurrection is not literally, historically true, if it did not happen in time and space, why waste your time coming to church? I mean, there are better things you could do with your time, better places to go than to be here. I mean, you guys look pretty, and it's great to have you here in this room, but you could be somewhere probably having a better time. In fact, you should be a hedonist rather than a Christian if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Eat, drink, do all that you can to fill your time up with as much entertainment as possible because tomorrow you're going to die. And then that's it. Your, your consciousness is gone and your brain is going to rot in the ground. And very soon, no one's going to ever know you existed. That's the sum of life. So get all you can if there is no resurrection. Get it all you can right now. But happily, that's not the story. That's not the meaning of Easter Sunday. Paul insists in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. And and that's why we Christians have the tradition of saying, He is risen. He is risen indeed. In fact, it really happened. It's not just a sentimental wish that we have every springtime of new beginnings. Jesus didn't just rise metaphorically in your heart. In time and space, He came back to life and He is alive today. And he is king of kings and lord of lords. And as we've already sung together, heaven is worshiping him. And what a joy to join heaven for a little bit of time here in our own life experience in worshiping him. And if you're in Christ, that's your destiny. And I'll tell you what, the fact that that might not seem more exciting to us than it, 
than it does is just the fact that we're short-sighted. I believe that you'd have to hold us back. You'd have to hold me back, right? Um, You'd have to hold us back from wanting to worship him if we could really encounter his, his presence right now and see him in all his glory. So Paul offers evidence of the resurrection of Jesus in the form of eyewitness accounts in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelfth. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Well, consider just Paul for a moment. Consider the the zeal, the the sacrifices that he made with his lives. Are, Are those the actions of a man fabricating a false story? That... The, the apostles, the, the original disciples of Jesus, they gave, they gave their lives. They went to their death to perpetrate this truth. People give their lives for causes that they believe in. They don't go to their deaths to perpetrate lies. All the apostles, except for John and, and of course, Judas, who had betrayed Christ, were martyred for their bold witness for the resurrected Jesus. And as the scientist Blaise Pascal said, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. There's great evidence historically, and and, and none greater than, frankly, the empty tomb, right, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is foundational to the Christian faith. How do you respond to that? How do you, in your personal life, respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, we're going to consider three responses to the resurrection that we see in the Gospel of John's account. And to fully get the story, you you kind of really have to read all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all share different aspects and details. And it is possible, it can be challenging, but it is possible to harmonize them all, right, to try to understand. There's a lot of going and coming and all kinds of activity on, on, on Resurrection Sunday. But we're going to look at three responses this morning that we see in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John's account. And so these responses that we see are, first of all, perplexity. And secondly, joy. And then, finally, last, faith. These are the three responses that we see in the lives of the disciples of Jesus when they first came to understand his resurrection. So let's look at the first one, perplexity, verses 1 through 10, which Pastor Bill read for us. But let's look at it again together, and and, uh, we'll have the words on the screen here, but I encourage you to open your Bibles up to John chapter 20. Um, The the other scriptures that I'm going to be alluding to are are in your listening guide, in in your bulletin. You'll see them up on the screen as well. Um, but the idea here is, is um, if you just have your Bible open in John 20, we're just going to kind of walk through this whole chapter together this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, not, he is alive, but she was actually uh, perplexed and, and troubled, 
thinking that someone had stolen the body of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in just a, in just a minute. But she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Bear in mind, this was um, the, the crack of dawn, all right, just enough light to, to barely see inside that, that tomb. And I love Peter. He's all in, right? You can you just have this picture. Maybe he wasn't quite as good shape as John, maybe a little bit older, maybe a little bit heavier, right? But when he gets there, he doesn't stop running. He just kind of knocks John out of the way and just goes straight in there. And so we see here in verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, I just want to stop for a moment and think about these cloths. Here we actually see evidence for the resurrection in John's account versus the story, that the lie that went out, Matthew records, that the Pharisees came up with, right, that they instructed the soldiers to say that, that the disciples of Jesus had come and, and somehow, um, bear in mind, the, the cowardly disciples who all fled right, because they didn't want to be crucified themselves when Jesus was arrested. Suddenly, they somehow summed up courage. Um, they, they remember Jesus had said he would rise on the third day, and so they came, and they overpowered a Roman guard uh, who, by the way, were, were protecting the tomb at the threat of their lives, okay, uh, and, then, and then rolled away the stone and stole the body, all right? One thing you need to understand, in Jewish practice, um, what they would do is they would actually wrap up a body, something like a mummy, okay, with, with strips of cloth. Uh, in, in Jesus' case, when you, when you, when you compare the, the gospel text, you see that, that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had actually uh, encased Jesus. They had wrapped him with about 75 pounds of spices. And the idea was you would lay a body in a tomb. They didn't actually bury, the Jews didn't bury bodies in the ground. The Egyptians, of course, embalmed bodies, right? The Greeks burned them. The Jews would actually lay the body on a slab inside a, a carved out limestone tomb and would, would, would then, and, and would, would, would wrap them up tightly and then would, would roll a stone if it was a wealthy tomb, if it was a, a cheaper, you know, a, a cheaper tomb, maybe just kind of stick a rock in, a, in, in the hole like a cork and come back a year or two years later and take the bones and, and put them in a box, all right, and bury the bones. It was just very important to the, the Jews, all right? So here's the point. If, if someone had come in a rush, whether it was Jesus' disciples or whether, frankly, it was someone else, like the Pharisees or somebody else wanting to grab the body, uh, there, there's no way they would have been able to, frankly, unwrap him with all of, with the spices, with the, the congealed blood, okay? It would have been a mess to try to unwrap him. They wouldn't have taken the time to do that. They would have simply just grabbed the body, wrapped as it was, and, and run. Here you see evidence that, that, that Peter and, and John saw. And, and, and here we see a neatly folded face cloth, right? After Jesus came back to life, he had actually taken the time to, to take, take his head cloth off and to actually fold it. 
So kids, when your mom and dad ask you to make your bed or fold your clothes, all right, uh, there's actually a good pattern here to follow after, right? Neatness and godliness might actually have something to do with one another. But he had taken the time to do that, and, and they saw this unexplainable uh, evidence that actually he had come back to life. And so in verse 8, we see here, um, John writes, and of course he's talking about himself here, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, Now you get the idea here that though they saw the tomb was empty, and they had seen evidence for a resurrected Christ. By the way, some, some uh, Bible scholars actually think, and there's church tradition, that the, uh, the, the, the cloth that had actually wrapped around Christ were still uh, in the form. Like, in other words, when he came back to life, God recreated his body and he was able to pass right through them. And they, you know, it was just laying there all together. Now, the text doesn't actually indicate that. Um, maybe that's true. Okay, maybe not. But what we have here is they saw evidence that this was not done by some outside person, but that Jesus had come back to life as a miracle, all right? But we get the idea, though, that they, though they had seen this, and, and we see in the text that at least John believed that Jesus had risen, they were still not quite sure what was going on here. There, there was still some perplexion. W- would they see him again? Like, where is he? Has he, has he ascended to heaven? Are we never going to see him again? Uh, is he back in our lives? How, how is he going to respond to our cowardice and our betrayal? Remember, Peter's denying Christ, right? After his arrest and his suffering. All the other disciples ran like rabbits. And, and John, had, John had kind of, with the ladies, he had come from a distance. He's the one uh, male disciple that we read of the, of the 12 apostles who actually had been at the cross from a great distance, right? As he was there with Jesus' mother, Mary. So they didn't yet grasp God's grand plan for Jesus to voluntarily die on the cross to redeem humanity for the sins of mankind. And they didn't grasp that that was his actual mission as opposed to to coming and overthrowing the Roman Empire, right? And, 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 And becoming a physical king at that point in time and space and history They didn't quite grasp that God had a far greater plan to to save all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would repent of their sins and put their trust in him. They would would come to grasp all that later. And that that he was to rise from the dead in in glory to prove that his death was effective. They didn't quite yet have all that piece together, we read, and we see by their example here. In fact, Jesus had actually prophesied several times of his coming death and resurrection, and they just hadn't gotten that. You remember in, in early, early in John, in John chapter 2, 19, Jesus had told the, the Jewish leaders right in front of his disciples, he had said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up, raise it up. And he had, he had prophesied later to his own disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and he was going to die, and three days later he would rise. We see that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22 and 23, which, which says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. 
and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. They, they didn't like that. They didn't fit their narrative. It didn't fit their expectations. And, you know, sometimes we just don't internalize the things that we don't want to hear. The things that don't fit our expectations of how the narrative is supposed to go. And so they had kind of missed it. And then we see in John 20, verse 10, if you look back at your text here, then the disciples, that would be Peter and John, went back to their homes. So again, the idea here seems to be that Peter and John's heads were spinning. They were still processing all this information, right? They're, They're not out there in public declaring Christ is risen. They would do that later, very boldly, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, after Jesus had, had, had brought all the pieces together for them, right? But right now, there's still some perplexion going on, some perplexity in their lives. And, and the women who had faithfully followed Jesus even had less knowledge at this point. They hadn't yet been in the tomb, being able to examine the clothes. And so Luke, actually, in his gospel account, uses that very word, perplexed, to describe the women's initial reaction to the empty tomb. What is going on here? It had been a roller coaster of a week. It had only been a week since Palm Sunday, in which people were welcoming Jesus to Jerusalem, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a few days later, the arrest, the trial, the, the scourging, most of the disciples had, had fled the scene, but John and the women had followed Christ to the cross and were eyewitnesses of his brutal crucifixion. And the women, we read in another gospel account, had, had watched Joseph of Arimathea and, and Nicodemus carefully wrap Jesus' dead body and bury him in the tomb. You know, it's interesting to me, this is just a side note, Jesus died a, 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 a gruesome criminal's death, but he was actually buried um, uh, kind of a, a rich burial, okay? He, he, was, he was given a, a tomb, a new tomb that belonged to a rich man, 70 pounds, 75 pounds of spices worth an incredible amount of money, the way they had carefully wrapped him and, and buried him. And so there was no doubt in, in Mary Magdalene and the other, the other women's uh, minds who had, uh, who had been eyewitnesses of this all, Right? They hadn't fled the scene. They had been at the cross. They had watched him die. They had seen the spear thrust in his side and the blood and the water flow. They had seen his body wrapped, buried. They had seen the stone rolled in front of the tomb. They knew he was dead. And now he's alive. Sometimes it takes a little while to, 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 to just be able to react. Sometimes we're the same. Sometimes we are perplexed. How God's plan is somehow different from our plan. Maybe this morning in your own life, in your own heart of hearts, maybe you are perplexed at the ways of God. Some of this could be due to our own expectations. You know, in the context of world history, and frankly the context of the world today, we have it really good. We, we have a lot to be thankful for. In America, even as things are, even with all the craziness of these last years, uh, even, even with the trajectory that we see our, our nation going, we have a lot to be thankful for. And so it's easy maybe to build the expectation that, you know what, I'm going to have a pretty good run through life. 
you know, I'm going to make it to 85, 90, you know, with only minor health issues, then die a pretty quick, painless death. Uh, all the family should have a good run. That, stop and, and remember, that is not the expectation for the majority of humanity, all right? You go to Afghanistan, most families lose three to four children before they're two years old, right? Infant mat- uh, maternal mortality rates, uh, even in this world today, are quite different in, in, mo- in many places than here. So some of this may be our expectations, and then things don't go the way we expected. You get a diagnosis, and you can say, wait a minute, God, this is not how it's supposed to be for me. So expectations can have a part of this. Maybe you're perplexed at the problem of suffering. Well, you know, the Bible explains suffering. It takes us right back to the beginning, book of Genesis. God made a perfect world, a perfect creation to dwell with humanity. He created this garden that was to expand and spread and ultimately cover the earth. And yet, early on, mankind fell. Adam and Eve rebelled. And, and, and God cursed the earth. And so today we do have plagues and, and disease and suffering and, and wars and rumors of wars and cancer and covid and all kinds of suffering. So the Bible explains the big picture. And for the Christian, our ultimate hope is to be the new heavens and the new earth. And that there is great hope. But you know, while the Bible explains the big picture, what it doesn't do is answer every question we may have. It doesn't say why some people suffer more than others. But what we do know is that he loves us. And that he provides the comfort of his presence in a special way in our sufferings. Some of you know that very well. Jesus wept at Lazarus' graveside with Mary and and Martha. And those were genuine tears from the Son of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 says this about Christians. We, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. So why not? Well, despite real hardship and and questions that maybe we can't even fully answer, some of the whys, we have the joy of resurrection hope. And that's our second point this morning. We see joy here at the empty grave. So let's keep reading verse 11 through 23. So look at verse 11, back to Mary Magdalene's experience. We read, but, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And an actual word here in the original language here for weeping, it's a death wail. It's not a, you know, kind of, you know, composed uh, sniffle here. Uh, she is wailing at the, 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 the tomb. And it's not because, it's not like a professional wailer here. Mary had been forgiven much, and, and she loved much. Mary had gone all the way to the cross, and, and she was now determined to honor her Savior, to honor her, her Lord, um, and to do so by honoring his body as an act of devotion. So she had come to the tomb, not even sure how she was going to, that the women were talking about it, we read in another, in another gospel account, how they're going to roll that big stone back 
But they're going to go and anoint, uh, according to Jewish custom, the body of Christ, right? And when they saw, when, when, when she saw that the body was gone, right, in the, in the just, just enough, enough light uh, of day to be able to look in there and see that that, 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 that was missing, to, to see that that, that that stone had been rolled back, her conclusion was somebody with sinister motives had come along and stolen Jesus' body. And she was most likely worried that they were going to make sport of it. And she was going to do all in her power to stop that from happening, to honor him. And so we read, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white. And again, you kind of get this idea here that the angels um, really had to kind of confer together a little bit when they were going to appear to people and do their best not to freak them out, all right, to veil their glories, so to speak. And, and that's the... That's, that's kind of what we see here, right? I mean, reading between the lines a little bit, but she didn't really even recognize them or say much as far as angels. What, that the, hey, I'm talking to angels now. She may not even realize they're angels. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. What she was focused on was, I've got to find the body of my master, right? I am, I'm on a mission. And so she sees the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, and in that culture, this is, a, this is a, um, a, an address of respect. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, it, it's possible at this point that one of these messengers may have kind of pointed to her. Again, she's, she's, she's stooping, looking inside the, the tomb. She's not inside the tomb. She's looking inside the tomb, having this conversation and Jesus appears behind her, right? So it's very possible one of them might have been like, have a look, right? Remember, heaven knew what was going on. Heaven is rejoicing, and, and, and now these guys get to have a chance, these angels get to have a chance to, to intersect, to announce some good news, to, to explain some things. And so it's very possible they just kind of pointed. And, and we read, she turned, and she saw Jesus standing, but, but through her tears, and again, the, the light of early dawn, she didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to her, this, ask her the same question, woman, why are you weeping? He's, he's, he's gently letting her in, gently revealing himself to her. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I don't even know that she, if she's processed yet, how am I going to do that? Okay, full-grown man plus 75 pounds of spice and, and wrapping and all that stuff, right? And, 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 and I'm just going to throw him over my shoulder. I don't know what she was thinking. She's going to defend the honor of her master. She's going to take care of him. Jesus said to her, Mary, one word. I, I couldn't help but think, of Jesus' words in John 10, 3, where he said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. At that point, she recognized him. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus responded by saying, don't cling to me. Well, why do you think Jesus said that? It's because Mary was clinging to him. Right? And, and it might have been a while 
I don't think that Jesus immediately said that. I think she wept and rejoiced and clung. And he says, don't cling to me. She was clinging to him for joy, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, what did he mean by that? That might, in the English, it kind of comes off, and you're like, well, what's he talking about exactly here? Well, here's, here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying, don't worry. You're going to see me again. We're going to spend some more time together. I'm going to be around a little bit longer. I haven't yet ascended body and soul together to my Father. It's going to happen, but right now I've got a mission for you, an important mission. Now, I don't think it should be lost on us that Jesus' first appearance was to a woman. Pastor Kent Hughes writes, it is very significant that here, as in the other three Gospels, Christ first appears to the woman Mary Magdalene. Not to an apostle, not to the great in society or in the church, but to a particular woman. Christ appeared first to one who in the culture of the time was oppressed, a woman who had known great sin. What a great comfort it should be to us that Christ always comes first to the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he said in Matthew 5, 3. That truth will never change. Moreover, this was a woman who, frankly, is, is the greatest hero here, right? The most loyal, one of, the most loyal of Jesus' followers. Remember, the rest of the apostles had run like rabbits. And, and then John kind of circled back. Mary never left Christ. She didn't even leave his tomb when, when they buried him. She sat there, we read in, in Matthew, on that, on that Saturday. She sat there and, 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 and guarded the tomb, so to speak. And after the Sabbath had passed, she was first at first light. She was there to, to anoint his corpse. So she gives, he gives her a mission. He says, go to my brother's. I, I can't help but stop and, and remember Hebrews 2.11 that we studied months ago where Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And here again we see Christ's grace and for, forgiveness. I mean, had these men acted like brothers? But brothers remain true to the end, right? They, they stick with you no matter what. Well, they, these men had not. They, they had failed him. And yet here he calls them brothers. And he tells Mary to, to tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now let's keep reading. The, the, now now the, the scene changes, and it's evening. So the whole day, all kinds of stuff has gone on that day, right? We, we, we read in other accounts about the, the Jesus appearing to the two on the road to Emmaus, um, a, a number of, he, Jesus may have appeared to Peter already individually. It's kind of an off, off the script kind of thing that we, we read about in 1 Corinthians um, later. So, so here we see the, the, the focus of the story is they're gathered together in the evening, having heard of the risen Savior, still some perplexity going on, trying to kind of figure out what all happened. And we read verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And, and so John continues kind of his, 
commission here, Jesus, his version of the commission, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And without uh, taking the time to dive in, that would be a whole sermon, right, to the meaning of this last verse. Let me just say this, that God is the one who forgives. But the church is responsible to boldly proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and the converse. In other words, we have the authority from God to say to this world, if you reject Christ, you do not have forgiveness, but condemnation. But if you will receive him, you have the very forgiveness of God. But let's look back here at verse 20, right? How we see the, the, the disciples respond. In the ESV, it says they were glad. If there's ever an understatement, right? Um, uh, I mean, it's almost like, hey, good to see you, Jesus, you know? Uh, I think maybe the ESV hasn't done us a favor in how they have translated this word. That The NIV says the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Yes, their hearts were glad, but they were overjoyed. Well, most folks are generally happy at Easter. It's a nice holiday, right? Time with family. Uh, the kids get a chase, you know, chase after Easter eggs. Uh, you get a good meal together. It's, it's for, for, in our culture, it's kind of this idea of a, of a new start in spring, kind of a new beginning. But I, I hope that your heart is more than just happy this morning. I hope that your heart is, is actually filled with joy at the resurrection of Jesus. And that, that leads us to our last point, uh, the, the last response that we see this morning. And it took a while to be fully developed in, in the lives of uh, the men who become the apostles uh, and, I, and I pray that, that if it hasn't yet fully come to fruition in your heart, that, that today would be the day that, that in your own heart those fires would, would come alive and burn. But it's faith. Faith. And, and, and so before we re- keep reading here in verse 24, Luke actually gives us a little more context of what happened here in the room. Remember, the, the, the doors are locked for fear of the Jews, right? I mean, this is... Hours after Jesus had, had appeared to, to, to Mary Magdalene, and they had gotten that report. And, and two on the road to Emmaus, and they had gotten that report. And, and Peter and John had, had certainly seen the empty tomb. But they're still in this room, still kind of in a spirit of fear, still taking them some time to, to come to fully believe and understand the implications of the resurrection, right? And so Luke just shares a few more details of that first encounter with Jesus with the disciples all together. So in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, we read, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, shalom. <laughs> I'm sure he thought about what to say. You know, that first word, peace to you. Not you losers, knuckleheads, but peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. That's how it started. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a a ghost, a spirit, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He was patient with these disciples. And, and then Luke says, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. It, it takes us, does it not, as human beings, it takes us a little bit of time to transition from, from one perspective, one emotion, to something completely different. Faith sometimes is a journey. And as they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he asked them, have you anything here to eat? He was hungry. They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before him. At some point, while he's enjoying his meal, they, their, their hearts and their brains kind of synced up, and they re- realized this is really happening. Our, our Lord is risen. But John highlights the fact that there was one disciple of the original 12. There was one who wasn't yet with him. And he's the last apostle to fully believe. And so this is a man that we call Doubting Thomas. Now I have a brother named Thomas. And so I feel like I need to kind of stand up here a little bit for him, maybe for his uh, integrity here. Um, but John 20, verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And, and Thomas said, No, he didn't. In fact, what we, we, we hear he says is, Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand on his side, I will never believe. And so we kind of chuckle at Thomas. But let me just tell you, Thomas was not a cowardly man. If you go back in John's gospel, in John chapter 11, verse 16, we read that Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. He might have been a little bit of a cynical man, okay? Uh, But he was not a cowardly man. He loved Jesus, and he had been willing, truly, to die with Jesus when Jesus came up with this plan to, hey, let's go to Jerusalem, where, where they all know there's a whole bunch of people waiting to kill him. And Thomas says, all right, we're gonna die. Let's go die with him. If that's what he wants to do, we're all in this together. Thomas was actually a very practical man who spoke his mind. He didn't have to worry about what he was thinking, right? Uh, Thomas, tell us how you really feel about this thing, right? He tells us. Well, Jesus, earlier in his ministry, uh, you remember the beautiful words of John 14, in which he, he tells us that, told his disciples that, that their heart shouldn't be troubled. He goes before them to prepare a place for them in heaven for them, right? And he gets a little bit metaphorical. And he says, I I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I'm going and Thomas stops him. Thomas didn't have room for or time for all that metaphor. He's like, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Speak plainly. He, He was a man who liked empirical proof, right? And Thomas was likely in such deep grief Different people process in different ways. Most of the disciples, after they had run like rabbits and, and Jesus had died on the cross, they kind of circled back and were, were kind of, you know, commensurating together, trying to figure out what do we do next. Um, um, Thomas was not with them. He was likely off somewhere on his own, grieving, processing this grief. So he wasn't there when Jesus had appeared to other disciples. And so when he heard this story, 
he wasn't ready to believe his brother's good news. He wasn't ready to be disappointed again. And so we read how Jesus lovingly, but directly, helped Thomas believe. In verse 26, we read, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, hey, Thomas, come here. And of course, Thomas's jaws dropped right now. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here and, and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, Thomas here responded with actually maybe the most glorious response anyone could ever give to Christ. And he says, my Lord and my God. The, the disciples had called Jesus Lord before, kurios, which certainly was a title. Kyria, the actual Greek word kurios was, is something that really belonged to God. But no one had ever directly called him God. This is the, this is the, the, the one, one of the strongest professions of faith in the deity of Christ that we see in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. By the way, next time you're, you're talking with a, a, a friend who's in one of these cults, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons that don't believe that Jesus was truly God, bring him to this text. Bring him right here. It's incontrovertible. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now at this, the point in the story, Jesus is talking about us, right? We, we haven't seen with our own physical eyes like the disciples were able to see and the 500 that Jesus revealed himself to after he rose from the dead. But we have eyewitness reliable accounts of his resurrection. And we experience him through faith. So how about you and me? Do we really believe that Jesus is alive, that he will save us? That he's going to come again one day and make everything right. And that and until that happens, when we die, we too will rise. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus is part of saving faith. Paul wrote the Romans in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So brothers and sisters, if you are struggling today with your faith, let me, let me encourage you, read the Bible. You know, th this account ends, chapter 29 ends with verse 30 and 31 in which John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So let me encourage you, if you're struggling with doubt, and we see in the life of, of Thomas, doubt is not exactly the, the opposite of faith or belief, right? It can actually be part of the journey. Unbelief, cold, hard, pharisaical, unbelief. That's the opposite of belief. Doubt's not a great place to live, but if you're there, let me encourage you to read the Word. There's, there's power. Let the Holy Spirit convince you 
that this story that we're talking about, this resurrection of Jesus Christ, is true by reading his word. So as we land the plane this morning on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It must change the way we live our lives. So are you right now in the journey of your life fighting for faith? Well, if you are, and I hope you are, keep fighting. One day your faith will be sight because he's alive. One day you too will rise and will see him if you are in Christ. Are you struggling with your sin? I don't know about you. I'm really tired of sin. I'm tired of living in a sinful society. And even more than that, I'm I'm sick and tired of my own sin. Well, if that's you, if you're struggling with your sin, keep fighting. True righteousness awaits. Right now, if you're in Christ, you are positionally righteous. You have You have the very righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. Gift of the atonement, right? We we talked about this Friday night, that that he made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin, who was perfect, to be sin for us. On the cross, he bore the weight. The wrath of God was poured out against our sin on Jesus on that cross, right? God's just wrath at sin was satisfied so that we might become the righteousness of God. So he, he gives us positionally that righteousness, but one day, experientially, we will be righteous completely. No more sin nature. I look forward to that day. Maybe you're struggling right now with pain and, and suffering right now. Well, if that's true, eternal life and wholeness and, and joy await. Your best days physically are truly ahead of you, not behind you when you were young. You know, belief in the resurrection of Jesus means that you don't actually need your bucket lists. There's nothing wrong with experiencing this world and adventure. I believe in that stuff, really. You know, go have fun, right? Um, Not too much, right? Make sure you're on mission, but Christians should be having a lot of fun out there. But we don't need to, like, define our lives and the purpose of our lives by filling up a, a bucket list because an eternal life of discovery and, and purpose and, and worship in the new heavens and the new earth awaits. We don't need to fear aging or death. Pastor Matt Carter writes, we're aging and every day brings us closer to the grave. We, we try to cosmetically push death further into the future. I mean, if we ignore death, maybe death will ignore us not. The fear of death chains our hopes and dreams to the earthly transient desires of this life. But because Jesus conquered death, we can live for the next life, the eternal life, and not this temporary one. In other words, if we believe in the resurrection, we know that when we die, Christ, we win. And that's the whole argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15. At the end of that chapter, Paul talks about our spiritual resurrection bodies, comparing our physical bodies in this life to that of our ancestor Adam, and our resurrection body to that of the glorified body of the risen Christ, a body that is marked by power and glory and immortality. So he writes in verse 49 of 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so Paul ends that, that beautiful uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? So how should we live this week in light of the resurrection? Do you think that you can be too heavenly minded? That you're walking around bumping into stuff not being any earthly good? Nope. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior, that he is truly today alive, alive with you in heaven, cheering us on, praying for us, interceding to you for us, his children. Lord, I pray that we would live this week in light of a risen Savior and that our hope would truly be in Christ. Lord, that we'd have our, our head up, looking forward, running the race that you've marked us to run. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room, any friend who's come today, and I thank you for them, uh, if you, that you brought them here, but anybody here who, who doesn't yet really believe that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead, that he is king of kings and lord of lords and, and even hero. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you would give them uh, the eyes of faith to see the glory of the resurrected Christ. Lord, and that perplexity would turn to joy and that would turn to an enduring faith in their hearts. I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.